Good morning, friends. It is so good to see you. We may be few in numbers, but we are mighty in heart in here today. You know, I can feel it in an amazing, amazing way. I want you to feel it too, and I hope that you do. One of the ways I would love to do that is I'm going to invite you to stand up where you are, and let's get close. Somehow, we like, we've just like taken the side aisles today. Let's just, even in the row you're in, if you just want to gravitate toward the middle, get a little closer to somebody, say another good morning. You can talk again. It's okay to high five. Yeah, I love it. Thank you. Yes, if you're feeling sick, um, then maybe you could stay on the edge. <laughs> that's, that's okay, too. Thank you, thank you. Y'all, have you ever created something or been a part of something that you were so excited about? It was just something to behold, an amazing marvel, whether it's of your own making or something that you got to be a part of only to then have it completely ruined. Is there anything for you that comes to mind? Yo, when I get to serve upstairs with the LCH kids, I build these amazing towers, and they last like a second. I'm like, this is something that we need to take a picture of. It's gone. They love to, to build and tear down towers up there. But really, truly, in, in your life, is there something that you can remember, whether from childhood or in your adult life? Maybe it's some code that you've been working on at work for a new program, and then some coworker comes along and just decimates the whole thing. Or a, a piece of art that you've been working on that then just, whether it doesn't dry and it all runs or you're, you're working on some project only to find that the measurements were off by a half an inch and you have to start over. Like those, those kinds of things, uh, baking a loaf of bread or, or preparing it, right? That the dough is rising and it's going to be so perfect. And when you come back, it flattened, right? There, there are these things for us in our lives that we've, we've had some experience, especially if you've had siblings, younger ones. Right? The Legos that I built as a kid that I come back like an hour later and it's either destroyed or it has additions. That I'm like, it was perfect. It was perfect. Never mind those of you who are gardeners. You know what that's like. The perfect planting, the growth, then the deer or the rabbits. All of those things, right? If you have had one of those experiences, some experience like that, I think you are going to relate to the heart of God today in our passage in a way that um, maybe you haven't before. So previously on the screen here at Love Chapel Hill, we started a dive into the book of Isaiah. We did a bit of work around the context of Isaiah. Y'all, if you were here last week, you know I had a laser pointer and I was geeking out. Like that was, I'm sure you were geeking out too as we were getting into the context of Isaiah. We dug into the reality that Isaiah is speaking to the past of ancient Israel. And Isaiah in his lifetime is speaking to the present people who are there with him in that time and space 
But then Isaiah is also speaking to a future, a future that is to come, one that is not all rosy um, by any means. It is one that will be about destruction, but then redemption. So you can imagine how people enjoyed listening to Isaiah and his prophecy. This prophet, Isaiah, the 66 books, uh, or sorry, 66 chapters in the middle of our 66 books of the Bible is often referred to as the fifth gospel. And it's referred to in that way because it, more than any other Old Testament book, has something to say about the coming Messiah. And in that, it becomes the most quoted prophecy in the New Testament. It is, depending on how you measure it, some would say it is the most quoted book from the Old Testament in the New Testament, but it is for sure, no questions asked, the most quoted prophet in the New Testament. So Isaiah, in that space, we had a timeline. We have a timeline that is um, going to be a reference point for us as we go. If you were here last week, you got the, the full orientation to where we are, but we find ourselves right here in the middle. And so Isaiah picks up right here around the reign of King Ahaz, and then will be um, the prophet also to the King Hezekiah. Reminder, we are in this divided kingdom under King David, the great King David. There was one monarchy, right? Like it was, it was one land. Solomon's sons have some civil war, and there is a division between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Here, and a reminder, as we are navigating this in this extremely sensitive time, any reference to Israel. Throughout this teaching, throughout the scripture that we are reading, we are talking specifically of ancient Israel and the chosen people of God in, in this frame of the Old Testament. I will do my best to continue to, to refer to ancient Israel or to the northern kingdom and southern kingdom as we are navigating through this. But on this timeline, we find ourselves with Isaiah right here in the middle before the northern kingdom falls to the Assyrians and in this lead up for what will ultimately become the, the Babylonian um, exile that the southern kingdom will be taken over by Babylon and the people will be exiled to a foreign land. Lots of encouragement for us as we're getting started. Um, this timeline, we'll come back to it over and over again, just as a reference point to what we're, what we're talking about. Um, and so Isaiah here, we are picking up where his, his prophecy is speaking. And as, as the prophet, he is God's commissioned and anointed vessel to specifically, in this case, speak to the king, the king that is responsible for God's chosen people. And so sometimes Isaiah is talking to maybe a larger audience, but often his audience is actually specifically to the king who is making decisions that will impact all of the people of God. So today, we are picking up in Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5 is going to start as a song. It is actually Hebrew poetry, 
And this is often how prophets will speak. There is amazing creativity in it, um, but it is intentionally framed and phrased in a way to get the attention of the audience. And so this one, if you read all the way through it, and we're not going to read word for word the entire chapter, we'll be here a little, little longer than you anticipated if we did that. But it's certainly going to get their attention. It is not a bright, rosy picture um, for the people of God. And so Isaiah is working hard to get their attention that they can correct their ways. Most of the time when we are, we are entering into this prophecy space, with Isaiah specifically, there's usually this frame of a coming judgment, right? The, a warning that there is consequence for the way that these people have been living. Right? And last week we talked a bit about how they are living in a place of complacency, in this place of economic prosperity, in this place of um, certainly what they would see as, as a, um, a thriving period. What Isaiah is going to continue to call them back to is that they are thriving because they actually are building on the backs of the poor and of the oppressed that those who are on the margins have been forgotten. And there, they are not carrying forward the heart of God toward the entire community. And so Isaiah calls them out and then talks about the coming judgment because of the way that they are living. And then usually there is some hope on the other end. In this particular chapter, he doesn't leave them with hope. And so we will ourselves see how that hope comes in our day and time. So let's start with verses 1 and 2a. It'll be on the screen for you if you want to pull it up uh, on your phone or in your Bible. We'll read this together. I'll read it to you. You don't have to read along with me. We will read in collective. I will sing... For the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up, cleared it of stones, and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes. Y'all, this intro to the song is talking about the most beautiful vineyard that has been meticulously prepared all the way down to taking the stones out of the ground, preparing the soil, starting at the ground level, preparing the soil not just for the wild grapevines that naturally occur in this part of the world, but for the choicest of vines that he selected so that it would, it would bring about the best of crops. So he cleared this, the stones. He actually would have built a terrace. So because of the landscape, and we actually have a couple of pictures of a vineyard that exists today in this part of the world. 
So, and like this, this to me is like, oh my goodness, this is perfect. And so somehow the, what, the vineyard that we're talking about is like this or even better, but it's terraced, right? So because of the topography, they have to be in very, very intentional about how they plant the vines into the soil. So there's actually stones. Those are layers going up a bit of a hill. So perfectly aligned, doing the best to prepare the soil on this fertile hillside. So in it then is built a watchtower, and the watchtower is to be able to see all of the vineyard, right? To see when something might need extra care or to see how things are growing, when the harvest might be coming. Then there's a wine press that is cut from the stone, from the bedrock, to actually hew out the stone in such a way that once the harvest comes, it's prepared there to make the best of wine. So all of this preparation, you cannot overstate how much went into the preparation of this amazing vineyard. Vineyards were owned often by people of high status, people who were wealthy, and it was for the production of wine, not just grapes that you would eat, but for the production of wine, which this land still today is known for its vineyards and its wine. Can you think of another place in Scripture where there is immense preparation for the most perfect of settings and scenarios that good things would grow. I got you. What's you where at in Genesis? Eden, right? The Garden of Eden. Darren, thanks for feeding me that. That's <laughs> Eden. Genesis 1 and 2 that we just spent our last series working through and preparing to see this foundation that is laid, right? So this song also hearkening back to the beginning. There's also places in Israel's history, right, where they are not only delivered from slavery in Egypt, but they are led into what is to be the promised land, right? And that promised land required preparation for them to be ready. The enemies had to be driven out. This promised land is also part of the imagery that Isaiah is pulling on here. That this good vineyard is the place where God's people were intended to dwell and for good fruit to bear. I wish it stopped there just like I wish that Genesis 1 and 2 was like, that was the story. And there, here we are in a beautiful garden. But it doesn't. Then we get to verse 2b. But it yielded only bad fruit. Some translations might say wild grapes. Oh, and wild grapes grow there all over the place but they are no good for wine. I don't, I'm not a wine guy, 
but as I understand it, like our natural occurring grapes here in North Carolina, the muscadine, not so good for wine. Some people like it, but right, like, <laughs> but not so good, right? There are other better wines. In this case, right, that the intent is to cultivate a crop such that it would produce the finest of grapes and the finest of wine. But instead, what comes is no better than what would have grown wild on its own. Just like the story of God's chosen people that time and time again when the preparations are made for them. The decision to go their own way, to turn inward and be so inwardly focused that the character of God and the nature of God are no longer reflected to themselves or to the world around them, which was their intent from the beginning, from Genesis 1 and 2. We were called into this place of being partners with God to steward the goodness of creation. And in that calling, time and time again, the people of ancient Israel are falling short, turning inward. And so we get the response then in verses 3 and 4 from the, the one who planted the vineyard. Calling on the people of the southern kingdom. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem, the people of Judah, the southern kingdom, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad grapes? Reiterating that everything was put into this, the investment that was made into this vineyard, that it would produce the best, the best of crops. It yields only bad grapes. And so the one who planted it, the one who prepared it is asking, what more? could I have done? All of the needs were met. All of the needs for this to produce a good crop, and yet only bad grapes. So with this result of bad grapes, wild grapes, this is what happens that unfolds in verses 5 through 7. He says, now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge. It will be destroyed. I will break down its walls and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is ancient Israel. The people of the southern kingdom are the vines he delighted in. He looked for justice, but he saw bloodshed. For righteousness, but he heard cries of distress. And so as the crop yields only wild or, or bad grapes, what is to happen then is that the vineyard 
is not only let go, but the walls are brought down and the animals can trample it, can consume the wild grapes. All that has gone into it, even, even the rain will not fall on it. What is happening is the prophet is getting the attention of the audience. The people who have grown complacent in their ways to follow in the ways of the Lord Almighty, the one who planted the vineyard. Do you think the prophet got their attention? We would think. Right, the imagery here is the perfectly crafted vineyard is decimated. And it is heartbreaking to even read it, to think of what is like a beautiful art piece of a vineyard, like this. But because the vineyard doesn't produce, what we hear as it is unfolding is like taking mud and slinging it on a beautiful piece of art, right? That over and over, it's covered in such a way, right? That the vineyard is no longer recognizable. That what was hoped to be the vineyard to, to produce a good crop is no longer even going to exist. The imagery there is calling forth to the future of Isaiah's people. Calling to say that there is this coming reality that the southern kingdom is going to fall to Babylon that the people would be taken out of their land, that which was their promised land, into exile far from home again, to be oppressed themselves by another dominant nation, similar to what they experienced in Egypt. And so the prophet calls out a series of woes, W-O-E, saying, woe to you, or even woe to us, the reader. This word woe, not something that I use in my day-to-day. -day. I don't know about you. Is that a word that you're using frequently? That's, all right, we got one. <laughs> woe is me. Woe is this word of warning. This word that is calling out the offense, right? And so the destruction is not at hand. It is so far off that the people of God in this space, this time with Isaiah are hearing it saying, Isaiah, you're cracked. Like, it's, this is good times. Why would we anticipate that it's going to fall apart So Isaiah lists for them their offenses, gives them warning, right? That this, if you continue in this way, this destruction is imminent. But there's opportunity. It's part of the role of the prophet throughout ancient Israel. The role of the prophet is to call God's people back into alignment with the covenant and the relationship with God. And so he calls them out. As you hear these, 
I'll let you decide whether they are antiquated or maybe still have something to say to us today. Woe to you who add house to house to join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. The Lord Almighty has declared in my hearing, surely the great houses will become desolate, the fine mansions left without occupants. They're taking up land, right? And in ancient Israel, in ancient times especially, it was understood that the land didn't belong to them. The land belonged to the one who made it, and they are stewards. But there was land set apart for each of the tribes of Israel and the families within those tribes. It was intended, right, that that land was the promised gift that they then are to steward. But instead of holding it, time and time again, the wealthy would buy up the land. And so this joining house to house, it doesn't sound so bad, right? But joining house to house and field to field means that I'm taking that for myself or my own family and pushing off those who it belonged to before. And the land was so sacred for them and was intended to hold space for them that even when things got to such a desperate place and there was provision for them to sell it, still there was a mechanism that that land was intended to be returned back to the original steward of the land. But that doesn't happen. So they accumulate and amass wealth. And those who are the most vulnerable are left without a place to go. What they're doing might be legal under their law, but it is neither right nor moral. And that's what Isaiah is calling them out for. He goes on to say, Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks and who stay up at night till they are inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres at their banquets, pipes and trembles and wine, and they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of his hands. Therefore, my people will go into exile for lack of understanding. Those of high rank will die of hunger, and common people will be parched with thirst. He's calling them out out for the seeking of pleasure and pleasure alone. Pleasure in all of the ways and all ways, instead of taking up the cause of the Lord to look after the oppressed, to care for the orphan and the widow. He goes on. There are six woes, by the way. Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit and wickedness as with cart ropes. To those who say, let God hurry. Let him hasten his work so we may see it. They're saying, even pushing 
that sure, Isaiah, if God says this destruction is coming, then prove it. Then show us. Even taunting God in his words of warning. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter that their priorities have become so fixed on what's good for themselves. What's good for myself, regardless of whether it is harmful to someone else or harmful to the community around us. Exchanging what is good for what is evil and what is evil for what is good. And so woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions of mixing drinks who acquit the guilty for a bribe but deny justice to the innocent. He's not calling out those who might enjoy a drink, okay? God was, after all, setting up the most choice of vineyards to harvest the best grapes to make it into the best wine ever. But he's calling out those who would prioritize their drinking over the love and care for their neighbor, their own self-satisfaction, that they would walk past another person, another image bearer, shivering in the cold alone and in need of help so that they could get on to the celebration. And so Isaiah warns the destruction is coming. And this passage ends that destruction will be so immense that there will only be darkness and distress. That even the sun will be darkened by the clouds of battle. And so, if you're looking to go deeper in this, you can compare those six woes that Isaiah just gave us to the seven woes that Jesus has to speak to the religious leaders of his day. You might find some similarities. Matthew 23, if you're feeling that later. As a reminder, on the teaching page, there are resources for you to dig a little deeper there as well. We're going to shift seeing this vineyard, right, as the people of ancient Israel who God was building up to produce a great harvest. That in this way, God was speaking to that time and space, speaking to the past. But God is also speaking to our present. And not only speaking to the future of a coming Messiah for the people of ancient Israel, but for the Messiah who has come for us, that whether we have received him now or that may be something coming for us in the future, we also have the hope that this Messiah will return again and set all things right to restore the vineyard as it is intended. And so that shift for us, looking at this through the lens of ancient Israel, 
to looking at it through the lens of the human heart. That the vineyard, not just a physical place planted out on a hillside, a fertile hillside, but the vineyard God is speaking of is within. That within you, the human heart, is this place that God has been preparing and intended for the best of fruit to come. But we find ourselves with the mud that is slung all over that piece of art covering our own human hearts. Our choices that we make, the experiences that we have in life, that God is wanting to do a work of preparing that fertile place that you, that you can produce the choice grapes that then become a new wine, that become the best wine. And so we have to hear these woes as well, that these woes are not such that they're condemning, but these woes are coming from places of love and shaping and transforming, that the transforming power of the presence of the Holy Spirit wants to make our hearts that dwelling place for God, that dwelling place where we are in perfect relationship with God, our Creator. And so these woes are calling out to us. We can, we can bring them into our day. What is that woe? As John was leading us in, in the song, come out of hiding, woe to those who are in hiding. Woe to those who harbor bitterness and anger in their hearts. Woe to those who are endless consumers, consumers of goods that hold people in the bondage of slavery and oppression. Woe to those who put political party or power over faith in the creator of the cosmos. Woe to us who drown out and numb our pain through the use of substance, or consumption of media. Woe to us who fear to put our trust in our maker. When we heed the woes that God has for us, and maybe he has something specifically that he's laying on your heart right now, this is a matter of the heart that ancient Israel didn't get to this place of complacency and apathy in a day. It is the slow turning inward of the individual human hearts that the care for neighbor and the love for God is drowned out. But when we open ourselves up, when we heed those woes, 
to save us from destruction. When we heed those woes, the woe, W-O-E, can become the woe (laughs) when Jesus is in the house. When Jesus is present in the human heart, those places of brokenness, those places of woe can be repaired, can be healed. They can be made whole again, just like the intent for the vineyard, that Jesus enters into the vineyard And then there is a process of cultivating again. Let's pull those stones out of the soil. One by one, if we have to, let's take them out, heal the land of our hearts so that the true vine can take root there. That is Jesus, the true vine. From John 15, I am the true vine. And my father is the gardener. He's redeeming this vineyard imagery, carrying it forward all the way to us and all the way into the future when all of creation is restored. My father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine, the true vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you don't remain in me, like that vineyard that Isaiah spoke about, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into a fire and burned. But if you remain in me, my words remain in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. Right? Jesus is ready to enter the vineyard, to plant the choicest vine in the soil of your heart. And it doesn't stop there. We remain in that vine. That vine continues to grow and produces fruit. And what are the fruit? But love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And when those those fruits come to be, then a new wine is ready to be produced. And so the new wine is what we come to the table to receive today. The wine of the new covenant, 
that is for the forgiveness of sin, for the purifying of your heart, for the preparation of the soil in you, that the good fruit will come. And so we invite you to come to the table today to taste this new wine, the fruit of the vine, with the brokenness of the body of Jesus, that his body was broken, that those seeds could be planted in that fertile soil, and that life would come, not just life here and now, but life everlasting. So friends, I invite you to come, taste this new wine, and see the goodness of God. I invite you to come down this side. Our servers are ready. Let's tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup, and receive. Come to the table.